The text is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. So far in Timothy, in this letter, Paul has made the case that Timothy needs to correct these false teachers, that he needs to hold true to true doctrine. Paul has made the case that Paul was an apostle appointed directly by Jesus. The words and the gospel that Paul preached were the words given by God Himself. So any personal attack against Paul or against the message that he preached was an attack against God. This is what Paul is saying, as strange as that may be to our ears today. The purity of the gospel is serious business, and it's a truth worth fighting for. And for this reason, Paul is charging Timothy to hold this truth. He's commanding Timothy, the pastor, over and over again, about a dozen times in this letter. He says, I charge you, I command you to do this. It's military language. He wants Timothy to persevere. So this is 1 Timothy 1, 18-20. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Good and great God, we do ask now that you would open our eyes, that you would soften our hearts. We pray that we would receive this word. Lord, that we would receive it with joy and with obedient hearts. We would love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Fight the good fight. That's the title. We're going to talk about five ways that we see, not just in this passage, but all through Timothy, Paul explaining how to fight the fight of the Christian life, the fight for doctrine. He says fight as a family, first of all. Secondly, fight under authority. Thirdly, fight well. Fourthly, fight diligently. And fifthly, fight with discipline. As a family, under authority, well, diligently, and with discipline. When you do this, you won't shipwreck your faith. We're going to talk about that. First, fight as a family. Why do I say that? It's because all through Timothy, Paul uses what's called household language. He equates the family of God with the family at home. Notice in verse 18, he calls Timothy my child. Were they related? They were related in Christ. I told someone this week that it's just the pleasure of the Holy Spirit that what we hear in Sunday school and what you hear from the pulpit on Sunday mornings is often almost the same message. It's nothing that Art and I plan or Jerry and I ever plan. It's just the Holy Spirit. He's saying this is important when that happens. 
course, it's only one of the ways that he impresses the word on our hearts. But once again, this week, uh, he has done it. There's this satanic myth, I believe, a worldly myth, that somehow adopted children are a little bit less than real children. They're not. They're not the same. They can't be. They don't have my blood. Biological children are, are the real important children. Adopted children are not even part of our marriage or anything else. And of course, there's no surprise that Satan would attack adoption as he attacks marriage. Like, duh. Why would he attack marriage and adoption? These are things that God has put in His Word, all over His Word, to show us about the relationship between Himself and us. You all know that David is our adopted son. It's one of the most wonderful days in our lives. It was February 18th, 2003. Okay, I'm not even going to talk about it. It's wonderful. David became our son. In the eyes of the law, he is our son. He's my heir. One of my heirs. They're already fighting over who gets what. I'm only 50. He's a steal. He's my son. Do you not realize if you've been saved by God, you have been adopted? That's the language God uses. You've been adopted. You are all adopted into God's family. He's your father. You're so much a son or a daughter that Paul calls you co-heirs with Christ. Can you believe that? It's amazing. You're a co-heir with Christ. So this is why Paul calls Timothy his child. Because he really believes he is his child. And it's the second time he's used this language. He used it in the very beginning of the letter as well. And all through this letter, you see household language used. When appointing elders, he tells Timothy that an elder should be a person who can shepherd his own home because if he can't shepherd his home, how will he shepherd God's family? In Timothy 5, 1 Timothy 5, he says that in a church, the men should regard each other and women should regard the men in the church as fathers and brothers and sons. Likewise, the ladies, should regard, we should regard them as, as mothers and sisters and daughters. We are the family of God. We're truly God's family. You need to believe this. If you believe God is your Father, then you should believe that we are all part of the same family. Joined together by the Spirit of God, as Romans 8 says. You are sons of God. So with God as a Father, with the Holy Spirit in our souls, making us brothers and sisters, with Christ as the elder brother, we're a family. This bond is not less than blood. Indeed, Paul pulls from the language of blood family from nuclear families, not to say that this family is more important than that family or that family is more important than this family. He's just showing how similar they are and how important they both are. When you consider that the bond among the children of God is the Spirit of God Himself, 
certainly you can see how high and majestic is this body of Christ, this church family. And often, in many of our lives, our church family, our brothers and sisters in Christ, have relationships with us that's more sweet and more gentle and more kind and loving than anything we have among our blood relatives. We share in each other's joys and crosses. We grieve together. We rejoice together. We celebrate together. We suffer together. That's what God is calling us to as a family. We sacrifice our lives for each other. This is much more than just talking to each other after church. That's part of it, getting to know each other. But it's a lifestyle of togetherness, of hospitality, of pursuing those whom God has placed in our body. Consider this. You may or may not be with your blood relatives in heaven. You, you might not. And you probably know many of your blood relatives who are not believers. But everyone in the family of God you'll be with forever and ever and ever. So Paul's vision for church is a place where we treat each other like real family. So that you, like Paul, could call someone younger than you your child because of the love you have for that person. That this building would not just be a place where we come together on Sunday, but it would just be a continuation of the previous six days where we have been in each other's lives, encouraging each other and lifting each other up. This family that He has put together. So my challenge to you, as we start to begin to make this a reality for our family, this family of God that God has put together, And God has put each one of you here if you consider yourself a member of this church. If you really believe that and you believe God is your Father, here's my pastoral challenge to you. And it's a biblical challenge. Hospitality. Make every Sunday a day where we're all in each other's homes. Make every Sunday a day where you leave this service and you go to someone else's home and you spend the day with them until you come back together for prayer in the evening service. Make hospitality a centerpiece of our fellowship. Let not a week go by where you don't have another church family in your home. And it doesn't have to be a production. You don't have to do a 10-course meal or something. If you come to our house, you're probably going to eat chili or hot dogs or hamburgers or something. That's not the point. The point is you're together. You're together eating together and talking about God and sharing your life. And if there's a visitor, I mean, they should be swarmed with invitations. Why? Because that's what families do. This is a day dedicated to God's worship. It's not dedicated to watching football or dedicated to do some other crazy thing. It's dedicated to the worship of God. One way you're going to do that is spend time in fellowship together. It doesn't matter whether you're single or married, old or young, whether you're shy outgoing it doesn't matter come together after church old people invite the young people over longtime members invite some of these new folks over and vice versa pursue each other that's the point that's my challenge to you and it's not just me it's the bible read hebrews 13 1 and 2 that's how we love each other and sometimes by doing so you've entertained angels unaware that's what paul says So it's not just me, 
It's the Bible. So go for it. Make this part of your worship on Sundays. Fellowship. Why am I emphasizing this? This is part, there's nothing that Jerry and I do that's not related to the Christian life or not related to the battle. The battle of the Christian life. If you're in a combat fighter squadron or a combat unit, an important part of that unit is the commander making sure that everyone gets together as much as possible, whether you're on duty or off duty. Why? Because when you are facing enemy fire, you need to know that this guy is not just some stranger who's also trained to do good work. This is your brother. I see this as critical for the future battle. We don't know what the future holds, but I think it's going to be persecution for the church. And I think God's going to grow the church through that. And I think you're not going to lean on anyone else except the people in this room. There's going to be a day, Jesus said, when families are going to be divided, father against son and son against father and mother against daughter. Daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus said that. So when that happens, what do you got left? You got the church family, the family of God. And these ties that bind are going to be spiritual ties. You want to be able to look around and see younger people and say what Paul said, you're my child. I love you. You're my child. If you desire real New Testament church life at Meadow Creek, receive this word and do it. Okay, so we fight as family. That's how we fight the good fight. Point two, we fight under authority. Look in verse 18. Paul says, This charge, or this command, same word, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Paul had previously said, of course, that Jesus had entrusted or charged Paul to do this work. And now Paul is giving Timothy the charge. He's giving him the same command. And he's reminding him that this command also came from God, in Timothy's case, with prophecy. God had ordained him in this miraculous way, in this New Testament way. So now he's reminding Timothy of their shared responsibility. They both have a command given from God. Under the same authority, it's Jesus, the commander of God's armies. What's the responsibility? It's the truth of the gospel. And this is a charge or command that they have and that you have as well. Not just me, not just Jerry, not just someone who teaches. All of us have this command, but especially your leaders. This word command, of course, has a military flavor, doesn't it? If you've ever served in the military, you know command is a special thing. When that word is used, there's a command that's been given, then it must be done. Unless it's unlawful, unethical, or immoral. It must be done. Officers in the military can give commands, and you have to obey those commands, the commands of those appointed over you. If you've been in the military, you take an oath and you say those words. You promise. You swear to obey the orders of those appointed over you. Paul and Timothy have received a command from God. Same kind of idea. God has commanded us to do this, to preach the gospel, to protect the church, to protect our doctrine. And this command implies authority. The authority comes from God Himself. 
And we know this is important because at the very end of the letter, Paul says the same thing. He bookends his whole message to Timothy using this military language. 1 Timothy 6, 13. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I charge you in the presence of God. Why does he mention Pontius Pilate? Because Jesus knew that he had an authority much higher than Pontius Pilate. And so do we all. That's Jesus. But he's telling him, I charge you. This is a command from God. You must deal with false doctrine. You must deal with your church flock faithfully. You've been pointed by God. You've been given a command. You're under His authority. Now go and do it. And he continues the military theme by telling him that it's a war. And this is point three. The family of God, we are called to fight. All of us. Verse 18, he says, And by them you may wage the good warfare. By them, what's the them? It's your call. It's the authority that you have because of your commander. By them, you wage the good warfare. You see, our whole family is called to fight this fight. All of us at Meadow Creek. Which is kind of different, I don't think, since World War II or the Civil War maybe. Have whole families gone to fight? There's a a family in North Carolina I read about. The Tatham family. This woman had five sons. And when the call came throughout the southern states to repel the invading armies from the north, all five of her sons volunteered. Boof, they all gone. Only one came back. Can you imagine? The whole family went to fight. Only one came home. Similarly, our family is going to fight only we're all coming home. Every one of us. Maybe not on this earth, but we're all going to the same heavenly home. This is why Paul equates our work on the earth with warfare. We have to fight well. It's the third point. We fight well. The King James translate this, this phrase literally. You should war the good warfare. I like that. I like the Holman Christian Standard Version too. That Timothy should strongly engage in battle. These war fighting analogies, of course, they resonate with my soul just because that was my life for so long. Paul specifically, though, is referencing not the U.S. Air Force, but the Roman army. Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy 2 as he tells Timothy how to fight well. 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Galatians 6.17 From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I'm just going to give you a couple examples of Paul using military language to describe the Christian life and the life of a leader in the church. Well, what does that last one have to do with the military? I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The Roman army, for some time in the Roman army, once you finished your basic training and you were combat ready, they would put a tattoo on your, on your body. 
Slaves were given tattoos as well, and Paul could be referring to either one. He considered himself a slave of God, but he also considered himself a soldier in God's army. But to get this mark on your body as a Roman soldier was a, was a great honor. You had finished your training. You were ready to mark. You were part of the unit now, and you were ready to go to war. And anyone who saw it would know, this, this guy means business. And this, it's interesting, this has continued. Navy SEALs, when you finish training, you know what you get? You get a bone frog tattooed, I guess, on this side of your chest. Look it up. Crazy, right? Why? Because they've done something that none of us have done. And they want everyone to know that they've done it. When you see it, you should know, okay, that's someone who's done something amazing. That's special. He's ready to go to war. My son-in-law and Air Force PJ, they're special forces as well. They have a similar tradition. I haven't asked him if he got the Jolly Green Giant feet tattooed on his body yet. I hope he doesn't. But they do it in an undisclosed location. I'm not going to announce where that could be, possibly. But the point is that the mark sets you apart. If you're part of this elite unit, you're going to have a mark. And Paul is saying, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus Christ. I am in His army. I have done that work. I'm one of the special few. The training has been finished. Being a Christian is going to leave a mark on all of us. And with pride, we will someday be able to say like Paul, I bear on my body the marks of Christ. One last example in Ephesians chapter 6, of course, Paul tells all Christians that they need to put on their armor. Again, he's referencing Roman armor. From the head to the toes, you put on your armor to withstand the attacks of the enemy. You see, we're in a fight. We are in a battle. Our commander will be victorious, and so we are confident, but we are certainly in a battle together. And remember, the letter of 1 Timothy is bookended with the call to fight the good fight of faith. That's 1 Timothy 6.12. Fight the good fight of faith. Back before there were good communications among armies, it was difficult for a commander to tell his generals where to go. We're all kind of generally going to move south. Well, how do we know where the battle's going to be? What would they say? You run to the sound of the guns. When you hear guns, you go there. That's where the battle is. Of course, they would plan for much more detail in their, their war fighting, but ultimately, we all need to be running to the sound of the guns. We're not talking about real war. We're just talking about what Paul's talking about, the goodness of God's Word, the truth of His doctrine. There are some things that are non-negotiables for us. The Apostles' Creed declares some of those things. No one will ever get me to say, God willing, that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. That He is not Lord. Kill me. I hope I, hope I never would denounce the truth of our Lord. And all of us have that same desire. A 
true warriors are going to come out of the woodwork to get into the battle. We'll see in the next chapter next week that one of the primary, you might think to yourself right now, I'm not going to fight. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. When you pray, you're in the battle. When you pray every day, you are right in the thick of it. And you should be running to that battle. You should be running to your knees. I remember in... uh, it was 1999. There was uh, a rumor that there might be Clinton might be starting this war with the Serbians to free the I don't know Slobodan Milosevic had enslaved some people basically, tyrannized them, and President Clinton thought it was his duty to go and make sure they got out. So this rumor started floating. We're deploying. We're deploying to fight against the Serbians. And when that happens in any military unit, you got people calling from all over the world. Hey, are you sure you don't need help? Can I join your unit? Can I just come back? Can I be an auxiliary? I know a four-star general. He can appoint me to your command. This happens. People are just so fired up to get back to a combat unit. And heaven forbid you're in a staff job when the whole nation goes to war. That happened to people during the Gulf War. They were stuck working at the Pentagon. Can you imagine a worse thing for a soldier? You see, we should have that same desire to get into battle. The spiritual battle. Pastors and elders, of course, should be at the run, at the the very forefront of the battle. But all of us are in this fight together. We're a family. We should desire to fight well. Fourthly, we fight diligently. So how does Timothy fight? How do we fight? We fight diligently and we fight daily. That's how we fight the good fight. We live the Christian life. We live ordinary Christian lives. We do Christian things. We wake up and we study God's Word. We pray that God would make this Word something that's all over the nation, that His kingdom would come, that His will would be done. We pray that God would be glorified. And then we try to live godly lives. As if we were the only people with Jesus in the whole world. That Jesus and I are walking this life together. Because you are. That's why it says in verse 19, how do you do this thing? You hold faith in a good conscience. You hold faith by being a true Christian. You hold on to it. Your faith in Christ is the only thing that defines you. And a good conscience, this implies a pure pursuit of Jesus. You're not a hypocrite. You're not kind of there in some circumstances and not there in others. You're the same person through and through. There's nothing that changes that. I was reminded I told my daughter about this story this week. So we were talking about being the same person in all situations in life. There was a man and he had a lot of money. And there was a beautiful woman that worked for him, but she was married. And he asked her, if I gave you $100 million and it could be a secret, would you go to bed with me? $100 million. And it was all a secret. No one would ever find out. Would you do that? She said, well, it would be a secret. He said, yeah. 
She said, yeah, I would do that. He said, okay. If I gave you $1,000, would you go to bed with me? And she was offended. She said, excuse me, what kind of woman do you think I am? And he said, we've already determined what you are. Now we're just negotiating the price. Right? She wasn't a consistent person. She was different. And there were things in this world that could pull her from God's standard. For us to fight this fight, we need to be consistent people. The same in every situation. Whether you're alone, whether you're with people, whether you're at work, whether you're at home. All the people in your family should look at you and say, that person is the same no matter what. And this is a daily diligence. This is a normal life. This is living every day. Corum Deo before the face of God. This is fighting the good fight. It's not as glamorous as you thought, is it? It's always so funny to me. You see people joining the Marine Corps. They see the, the uniform and the swords and all this stuff, and they think, wow, that's going to be so awesome. I get to wear these. Then they get done with basic training, and you know what? It's just living a normal life with a uniform and someone screaming at you all the time. It's a regular life. It's not as glamorous as you think. Fighting well for Christ means just living a normal life well before the face of God. You keep your head in the Word. You keep your knees on the ground praying. And you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. And fifthly and finally, we fight with discipline. And I don't mean uh, the kind of military discipline where you are taught how to march or something. I mean, actual discipline, as if you would discipline your own children. Look at verses 19 and 20. Paul says that he had to discipline some people, Hymenaeus and Alexander. He handed them over to Satan. He excommunicated them. Timothy didn't excommunicate them. He should have, but he didn't. And Paul, as the apostle, steps in and said, I did this. I'm helping you. Now you've got to finish the job. There's other false teachers there who refused to repent, refused to accept any discipline in their lives. That's the way it should actually happen, is Paul should have contacted these men, and these men should have repented. They should have said, you're right, we're so sorry. In the military, they train this into you from your very first day of basic training. What do you do when something goes wrong? What does the, the drill instructor tell you to do? Does anyone know? It's pretty simple. Drop and give me 20. You do push-ups right away. Boom. You pump them out. You stand back up to attention. He just disciplined you. And that's how you should receive discipline. All the time in the military. Drop and give me 20. Or whatever it is. You just say yes, sir, and you do it. That's what these people in the church should have done. They should have accepted what Paul had to say as someone appointed by God to discipline them. As an elder in the church. But they didn't receive it. They refused to repent. They were excommunicated from the church. That's what excommunication is. It's dealing with someone who has unrepentant sin in their lives. Jerry and I, as your elders, aren't fruit inspectors. We're not coming over to your home to make sure that you got everything perfect. Because you know what? Nobody does. But if there's unrepentant sin, if we go, hey, 
you shouldn't be watching pornography on your phone. And you go, ah, forget about it. I'm going to do this anyway. That's unrepentant sin. And if you continue in your unrepentance, it's our duty to discipline. And people who are unrepentant in their sin to the point of excommunication, it's really us just affirming Paul is only affirming or confirming what is already true, that these people lack true faith. Because anyone who has faith will accept correction. All of us will. That's how Paul can say by this, that they made a shipwreck of their faith. It wasn't real faith to begin with. But they made a shipwreck of whatever it was they had. They just showed that they weren't ours to begin with, as John says in 1 John 2.19 People leave and they have no desire to come back. It just confirms that they were never ours to begin with. So I'm going to talk for just a second about the authority of elders. It's uncomfortable because I am an elder, but it's my duty to do so. So please receive this. The Bible teachers teaches that elders have God's authority to make decisions for the church. I think it's difficult in every church to accept this initially, but once you get it, you get it. And it's important that you do. There's a number of reasons why. I talked to a friend yesterday who goes to another church in Virginia, and he said their elders are making decisions, and then the congregation is just grumbling about them. That's not the way things should be. Of course, the elders should be united, but then the church should receive the decisions of the elders as if they're coming from God. Not that we never make mistakes, and I'll address that in a minute. But that's how you should prayerfully receive it. It's I've, one of the downsides of being an officer in the military is you go to a lot of staff meetings. You've got a boss sitting at the front of the table, and he's got so much to say. But when he slaps his hand on the desk and he says, go out, he's expecting you as the officers at this table to embrace whatever decision he's made as your own decision, whether you disagree with him or not. And you go out and you execute so much so that the people under your command would never know that you disagreed with them in the first place. That's exactly the same how it's supposed to be in the church. When the elders get together, if hopefully you never, ever know that Jerry and I would ever disagree about anything. Because I love him and he loves me. And when we make a decision, we own it. It comes much the same way when you recognize the authority that God has given elders in a church, that you receive the decisions of the elders in the church. Matthew 16 and Matthew 19, Jesus makes kind of the same point. Well, not kind of. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The context is church discipline in Matthew 19. He's saying that whatever decisions you make, Church leaders, you're doing this with the authority of God. When you accept or reject someone into fellowship or out of fellowship, you have God's authority in the church to do this. It's as if God were doing it Himself. Jesus is delegating and establishing authority in the church. And He's ensuring that the leaders of the church know that they act not only with the authority of God, but under the authority of God. 
That's why Timothy is told later in 1 Timothy 5, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. When you elect an elder and the elders lay their hands on this person and pray for them and bring them into eldership, this is serious. This is a serious thing. That's why you should elect elders with great care and great prayer. And then, well, there is an objection, and I told you I'd address it. Well, here's how my brain worked when I first was introduced to the idea of elders in a church that actually have authority. Hold on, these guys, I know them. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to get things wrong. Hold on. They're human like me. What if they mess something up? Could you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13? Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. It's at the very end of the New Testament. Hebrews. Let's read Hebrews 13. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Do you see what he's saying? Paul's saying that pray for... Well, he doesn't say pray yet. He says pray in verse 18. Pray for us. Because we're trying to do this. But he says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Because they're better than you. No, of course not. God has appointed them to keep watch over your souls. That's the whole point of godly eldership in the first place. As under-shepherds of the great shepherd. To shepherd your souls. And that's why right after that, he does say, pray for us. Verse 18. This is what Jerry and I say as well. Pray for us. We need it. If you feel attacked by the enemy, imagine what your elders feel. Pray for us. We all need to be ready to fight the good fight. But you need to pray for your elders. Okay, enough on that. So let me review before I summarize and close the sermon. The Christian life is one filled with battle. And it's not going to be easy. I'm just telling you it's not. But it's one that's worth fighting. And it's one that you fight together as a family. Be together, fellowship often, eat together. And starting next Sunday, be at each other's houses every Sunday until you die. Be together on Sundays. Number two, know your Bible so you can fight the good fight. Live a holy life, a godly life. Hold faith in a good conscience, as Paul said. And finally, pray for your elders to love and correct with wisdom, as Paul did with Hymenaeus and Alexander. This is really just kind of the New Testament way of talking about the ordinary means of grace, prayer, study of the Word of God, fellowship, sacraments. Because if you do these things, you won't shipwreck your faith. And this is the conclusion. This is another helpful metaphor. The Christian life is like a journey on a boat. Calvin said about this passage, we should be aware that while we live in this world, We sail as on a ship. We travel as if on water and would soon sink and drown if we were not sustained by the power of our God. We would shipwreck our faith if we didn't do these things. 
The false teacher's boat was shipwrecked. It's like in Ephesians 4. They had no rudder to their boats, so they were tossed back and forth with every wave and blown here and there by every wind of doctrine. But you see, in Christ, we have a rudder to the boat. The Word of God makes our destination sure. We fix our eyes on the morning star, as it were, Jesus Christ. There are battles to be fought. This is a boat with guns. This is a man of war. But we're all in this boat together, like Noah and his family. We're all together. And we're certain that because God is our commander, and He's given this church officers that desire to do His will, He's given us His Word, right and just commands. And He shows us great compassion that we can fight the good fight. We can love each other well. We can love God with all our hearts. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You that You have called us to a, such a time as this. As You raised up Esther for a difficult time in the life of her nation, so You've raised up each one of us in Meadow Creek Church for such a time as this. In every age, there are these times and we pray that we would be ready. That we'd be willing to fight the good fight. That we would live well for You every day. That we would study Your Word. That we would worship together at home and that our homes would be places of great love and fellowship. Breaking of bread and prayer. Lord, be with us. Encourage us and strengthen us. And may Satan not take any of this word from our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.